In a world where it seems totally normal to listen to a podcast about the Toronto Argonauts, it's the X's and Argos Podcast. Welcome to the X's and Argos Scouting Report brought to you by Funny Bone Broth. It is the CFL's Eastern Final edition of the Scouting Report. And as I have as many times as I could this year, and there's been so many occasions to choose from, I have brought in Marshall Ferguson (laughs) from uh, CFL on TSN uh, to help me break down the matchup that it always should be, right, Marshall? Toronto versus Hamilton in the Eastern Final. Yeah, I was actually amazed when Dave Naylor put out that because, uh, you know, my historical context on going way, way, way back on this rivalry is not very deep. Like I'm I'm uh, uh, I think cautious enough to admit that I, I don't know what I don't know. And and I certainly am new to all of this in the last five, six years of covering these teams. And I've enjoyed the hell out of these matchups. And it's funny the the colors on the uniform it just looks different to me, even when I'm tracking the games, like in my game tracker where I have the black and gold next to the double blue. And I, I see those things side by side. And there's something emotionally for me that just kind of kicks in uh, with that. That's just like I, my heart rate goes up a little bit. And I so I'm I'm really excited. But yeah, for it to be the first time since 2013 and only the second in the last 35 years, when Naylor put it that said, I was like, well, I know Winnipeg used to be in the East, but what the hell? Like, And, and I get it, like Calvio ran through this thing forever so that took a big chunk of all the east final appearances from one of the two teams that were in the mix and uh you know when hamilton has been good as of basically this decade for the first time in a while really consistently uh once they got to tim Hortons field toronto has fallen on some hard times even on the years where they you know they've had to fight their way through to get there it's been like ottawa's factored in that ottawa had their success and it's like and you do the math on it and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, yeah, this is like super rare to have this. And uh, I've kind of been thinking like big picture, Ben, about it just to kick off the week. And it it really does make week 15, which I was super excited for. I wrote about, I was, you know, talking to all these radio shows throughout the day to hype it up and all. It makes that feel like a pebble in the ocean compared to what's at stake in this one. Yeah, for sure. It's everything's on the line. And we've talked about how often these teams have played this year, if you know, maybe not every Eastern final, obviously, but this year, it's it's been every other week, the the Argos and and Ticat seemingly are are playing. I was wondering what your perspective is on that. JB and I couldn't really get a handle on that earlier in the week. Because I know, like, for, for me personally, I think it's tough to play against any team twice. Because right. I think it's just tough to, in professional football, really any level of football, um, whether it's overconfidence or just, you know, not being able to use the same stuff you used last time, it's tough to beat a team twice. Now, to beat a team uh, four times, I don't know. I don't know if it matters at this point. And JB was sort of saying, once you get to five, it's it sort of neutralizes everything. There's no rule anymore. You sort of are, everyone's kind of starting from scratch. How do you feel about a fifth matchup here? Yeah, I like what JB had to say there because to me it's kind of like you know if you are um, you know if you're you're used to traveling one town over to go see your grandparents or your family members, it's like well you know that you know how that's going to feel, you know how that's going to go, you know you're going to make the trip. If you're going two towns over to see you know maybe your uncle or your aunt you don't see very much, then maybe you do that. Maybe if you're going one province over to go see a cousin, then maybe it, this is the equivalent of like you're from the East coast. You've never been past Quebec and you, and somebody from your family says, Oh, you have a long lost sister. That's actually in Vancouver. And you're like, Oh, okay. I'm going to, I don't know how this is going to, I have no idea what this is going to look. It's just, it's so foreign to have teams play each other this much. I'll say this about your theory on playing a team twice. Like when I was a player, 
I, I hated this. Like as a fan and as an analyst, I love it. And I think the reason why I felt those two things, and I'm sure there are players who like it and those who don't, they might not hate it. For me, it was, yeah, that's fine. I can, I can understand their personnel a little bit better or I can understand their schemes a little bit better. I can trust my eyes a little bit more. But I always knew that every time that I thought I was understanding or learning something, they're being coached on the other side to change it up on me. Like they're not going to leave things the exact same. So I was constantly second guessing myself when I would play a team back to back or see them within a couple of weeks, like, you know, week seven of the OUA season and then the first round of the playoffs or something like that, because it's like, okay, I'm seeing this two shell and I think I have an understanding of what they like to run here, but I'm like, but they know that I think that I know what they're doing and they're knowing what I do. It's just, and for me, I always overthought it. So I didn't like the mental gymnastics of that. I liked hey, I haven't seen this team in, in maybe the entire season or I haven't seen them in two months. They've had some injuries. We've had some injuries. We've changed some schemes. They've changed some stuff. Let's get after it. That's obviously not the case with these two teams. And I think the the interesting thing from the media perspective on why I enjoy it is that you get to see, I kind of compare it to almost like wood carving, where if you play against a team once you get to see a lot of the similar players, not all of the same players because of injuries and whatever, but you get to see a lot of the similar players on the field. And it's like, well, that chips away a little bit and you make some of the shape out of the wood twice. You start to see it really come to shape three times, four times, now five. And it's like, this thing is intricate. And it's got, it's like, I know that when Toronto wants to run a slant and go on the outside, that Jamal roll is going to bite down. And then it's a question of whether or not Tunde Adelike has the range to get over there. Well, he's shown that he has, well, McLeod might see that. And if he flips his hips to the backside, well, Eric Rogers is back in the line. It's like you can actually look at the specifics of this in a way that as, as media members, we would not be able to do that in the preseason. We would just be like, hey, let's see what these teams look like and roll the ball out there and get after it. We've learned so much. By the time you reach the end of the season, John Behe, my old offensive coordinator, used to have this great saying that I think holds true in media as much as it does as a coach or a player. He would always say that playoff McMaster when I was playing there would beat the hell out of week one McMaster. Because he's like, the amount that you learn and develop, and even if you suffer injuries because of the the trench warfare that is football, the amount you understand and learn about yourself throughout the season, you would just absolutely crush the week one version of yourself because you would look back at week one. Anytime you put film on from week one of even the Argos, you're like, what? They didn't even know what they were doing. Now it's refined. And, and I think that's why I enjoy seeing these teams play each other so much. But as I say, as a player, it's it, it almost gets to the point of being awkward where you're lining up from the same across from the same guy so much that you know so much about him and he knows so much about you that you're just you're lining up and you really have to use the sports psychology of let's wipe out so much of what's happened previously. I just need to win the rep. Like I need to win this little tiny piece of the war in order to be able to have success. But not a lot of guys can do that. And it's just the mental fatigue starts to wear on you. I think a little bit of, of the mental hula hoop that you're kind of swinging around inside of going, which direction is this guy going to go? Like I've, I've seen him do this 300 times different ways to me throughout the year. Now, if I can throw in from a coaching perspective to add to your, your player perspective on that, mm-hmm. I, I loved playing a team multiple times when I lost the first game. 
Yes. The second game as a coach, I love that because there's no question about player motivation. Uh, there's there's going to be overconfidence often from the other side. And I don't think, I think there's one time, I believe one time in, in 2014, I played a team twice and, and lost both times. Uh, but every other time, I, I think we were able to come on top the second time. But on the other side of things, I didn't like it nearly as much. There was always a concern about overconfidence because it's not that, and I'm not saying there's a lack of motivation here. Like this is a chance to go to the Great Cup. There's nothing like that happening. It's professional football. However, when you have had success against anybody, against anything in, in any walk of life, in any yep. discipline, it's very easy to sort of psychologically put yourself at, well, I've, I've done this before. It will be fine. We're going to take care of business. And coming in on the other side, uh, you're, you've got a team full of passion that remembers because you remember every loss on the football field. Um, and there's it's not so much about motivation. It's more about, you know, what, you know, what extra gear, I guess, you are, you're able to, to tap into for this. So as a coach, I'm scared about a matchup like this where Toronto has won three of four. I, I, I worry a little bit about that. Again, not lack of focus or preparation. It's just there's something inside your head that tells you this is easier than it actually is. You remember it, it differently. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you brought that up, Ben, because that, that to me is an unavoidable uh, necessity of great coaching in these situations is that it's not the fault of the players for feeling that way. That's how we are wired. Like, as you say, it doesn't matter if it's in your job, your home life or otherwise, like if I put my son down to bed three nights in a row and it goes perfectly and there's not even the slightest little bit of hitch, like I'm going to just start taking my foot off the gas pedal a little bit in terms of, Oh, I don't need to prep, right? Oh, I don't need to warm up that milk for him before he goes to bed. And Oh, I'm sure his soothers in his room or like, I'm just going to be like, ah, you know, things have been great. And that's just human nature. And that's, that's, I think where coaching comes. I, I personally think it's impossible regardless of what coaches say to have a team that's three and one against another team come in as equally motivated, fired up. They can act like it. They can fire themselves up. They can raw, raw speech in the tunnel. They can whatever, I actually think that you all of those things a lot of the time are they're external, right? They're they're on the periphery. They're just they're they're you're trying to give off that to almost convince yourself of that. What really I think gives teams that have had success the opportunity to keep winning against the team is when you face that first little bite of adversity in the game. Like if Hamilton goes up seven nothing, that's where all of a sudden all that ego and that external and that hey we'll be fine and it's, I'm trying to convince myself now it's real. And like it, it, the teams that have success consistently are the ones where they've been doing the right thing all year long. It's gotten them to that point. And when they face adversity, they keep doing the right thing. Same with Winnipeg. If they go down early in this Western final, I have great confidence that Winnipeg could go down by a touchdown or two and still come back and win. Why? Because they have sort of resolve. And I guess the question is, does Toronto have that kind of resolve? And does Hamilton have the ability to hold a team off when they haven't been able to, including Toronto, even when it was down at Tim Morton's field earlier in the year? And I think where psychology can come into this, uh, sort of on the flip side of it, is if Toronto is able to get out to an early lead, you mentioned Winnipeg being able to storm back because you know they that's who they are and they've done this before. I wonder if Toronto is able to, let's say Toronto is able to get up 10 nothing or something like that early on, I wonder how difficult it will be at that point for Hamilton because yeah. of how the last matchup went. And that is fresh in their minds. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it is, I, I think that's the biggest question for me. Like I've been tasked with breaking down this matchup on CFL.ca throughout the week. And the thing I keep coming back to every time, like I tweeted out today, 
that trying to figure out the Masoli McLeod Bethel Thompson matchup. And it's just a gif of a Rubik's cube because every time that I think I have the answer and I'm like, Oh, look over here, that'll be the difference. I'm like, Oh no, that's wrong. Cause there's actually something else that's affecting that. Okay. It just keeps moving and moving and moving. And the thing I keep coming back to is like, if I were to give you kind of like a blind taste test of these numbers head to head without telling you which quarterbacks they were, which of these quarterbacks would you take? One of them, okay. Quarterback one in the last, seven, eight games is completing 67% of his passes. The other is completing 71%. One of them's average depth of target QB one that had the 67% completion rate. His average depth of target is 9.2. The other quarterbacks is 12.33. So now you've got a quarterback with a deeper depth of target by three and a half yards and a higher completion percentage. Quarterback two also to go with those stats has 40 more yards passing per game in the second half of the season. The touchdown to interception ratio for quarterback two is 4.5. The touchdown to interception ratio for quarterback one is 0.82. The winning percentage of the team that quarterback two was playing against in the second half of the year was 838. Winning percentage for quarterback one was 757 in the second half of the season. Like, this is where I'm going with all this is there's a lot of lopsided stats that lean towards quarterback two, which you probably figured out by now, especially on the touchdown interception ratio. That's Jeremiah Masoli. Right. Like Masoli has all the advantage, all the statistical, you know what advantage and statistical thing he doesn't have week 15 at BMO field. And that's where this is just such a crazy setup. It's like everything that, that Hamilton and Masoli have done in the second half of the year points to they're hot. They should win. They should go onto the Grey Cup and, and be able to challenge anybody that comes out of the West because they'll have the home field advantage. If and they I, can't, if they can't beat the Argos of BMO, then none, none of that stuff matters. I can hear Kyle Mello yelling from his couch right now that a lot of Masoli's numbers came against the three teams <laughs> that didn't make the playoffs. But yeah, uh, yeah no, but you're you're right, and and it, that's it's so it's so tough to to break this one down without sort of putting. Uh, asterisks next to you know whatever stat because you can do it with McLeod Bethel Thompson too you can look at right. some of those turnover numbers and say well let's yeah but let's look at each turnover individually or let's look at where they were in the game um, it's it's a mess and so you know the odds, odds makers have this as pretty much a pick 'em because I don't think anybody has has any idea how this is going to go I wouldn't be surprised by pretty much any result I don't think it, I don't think anything could happen score wise that would stun me in this game I believe the Argos will win but but it wouldn't surprise me if, if Hamilton put together a great game and, and pulled it out. So, you know, it's it's I can imagine you sitting there looking through the stats. I, I know what a lot of them look like. And yeah, it, yeah it's, a, it's a it's a zoo. So I, I spend all year wishing for more data points to help my analysis. And now I have so many data points with these two teams and none of them make any sense. And I'm like, the hell are we do it. Like, how am I supposed to, to do my job predicting any of this? Right. Or talking my way through. And I think an honest analysis of these two teams and specifically these two quarterbacks is just to say they're really complicated. Like, and and that's, that's why I think this will be so much fun is that it's not, you know, I think the basic analysis for people sometimes is like, well, how many yards did he throw for? Or, Oh, my guy had two touchdowns and your guy had one touchdown or, but what this really comes down to is on every snap. And this is why I love quarterbacking. And I always say this when I'm on podcasts and, and whenever I chat with you and even in person, Ben, it's like, I love studying quarterbacks because they are incredibly complex beings because they have a billion decisions to make on every single play. And there's 500 different ways to play quarterback. And each one of them is unique and fun and different. And I mean, sometimes they're not all fun. I watched Taylor Cornelius all year and that was not fun. Uh, but for the most part, 
everybody kind of carves out their own style and finds a way to to ply their craft. And these guys, I think, are they might not be the most set in stone versions of tendencies and depths of targets and all that, but I mean, they've created a pretty good idea for me going into this of what they are going to be about. And because they are so unique and so different at times, you know, they're, I mean, I don't even know how to explain Jeremiah Masoli. Like he'll, he'll gunsling it all over the place, but he'll also be super, super hyper conservative. He'll check it down underneath all over the place. He'll lean on the running game and then out of nowhere, he'll use his legs. And then the next time he'll throw it right into your chest for an interception that he hasn't seen in three months. And it's like, okay, how am I supposed to figure that out? McLeod Bethel Thompson is like, he's got this gunslinger mentality, but his completion percentage on throws of 20 yards or more is not good. So it's like, well, can you have that and still have success? Well, yeah, it turns out you can because on first down, you can be hyper-efficient and complete everything on first down underneath, which actually is an extension of the run game, helps you get into healthy down and distances. And over the long course of the game, in the second half of the season when he's been named the starter and Arbuckle got traded, you can be productive on offense doing it that way. And it's like, okay, but if I take Macbeth style and I parse it against Masoli style, who wins? And that's why I keep just saying, like, I, I have no damn clue at this point. I just, I, I think it's going to be so much fun to see them try to figure it out on game day. Yeah, and, and I think the last thing you said there for sure resonates with me. I Don't you think this is going to be a fun game? Like I, I hope I'm, so. I'm as excited about this game as I have been about any all year. And it's not just because of what's on the line. That would do it, in a, uh, you know, on its own. But aside from that, I feel like both of these teams are actually in a pretty good place right now. I think health-wise, yeah. they're they're both in a, in a decent spot. You know, it's pretty much as good as it's been all year. And and they're both teams are, I'm scratching at the Edmonton game, but I think both teams are are coming off of uh, some good play. So yeah, I expect this to be to be pretty good and there should be a pretty good atmosphere there at, at BMO Field. Now, I, I've got a quarterback question for you because I want to know, looking at the Toronto Argonauts, over the last few games where Eric Rodgers has been out, they moved Varys Daniels into the slot, and suddenly he was one of McLeod Bethel-Thompson's favorite targets. Uh, so it was if it wasn't Varys Daniels, it was Curly Gittins Jr., who's, who's a, a Z receiver, which in itself is amazing to have a favorite target that's out wide to the field side. And yeah. just looking at his stats, like 50 receptions, 600 yards for a Z is, is pretty awesome. But you look at those two guys that he sort of uh, you know, uh, built a relationship with, do you think that helps when now Eric Rodgers is back? I assume Rodgers is going to go back into the boundary slot. Devers is going to go back to X. Do you think that that rapport that they spent time building, even though it was in the slot, is going to carry over now that Devers is back at X? I'll say this about having a really super talented receiver like Eric Rodgers come back into the lineup. It should all be positive, but it always makes me nervous just because as an ex-quarterback, you have a tendency, whether you realize it or not, that when you break the huddle, again, this is the human nature stuff that we're talking about with the psychology that, that just gets ratcheted up in the playoffs to feel that much more intense. You break the huddle and you know what your read is and you know what you would be doing subconsciously if it were not Eric Rogers standing over there. But there is that little half a second of a thought when you're breaking the huddle, walking to the line where you're like, oh, damn, that'd be really nice to get Eric the ball in this play, right? And it's just, it's natural because you're like, well, he's he's great. He's awesome at what he does, so I should look that way. Does that throw off your read? Does that ruin your progression? I guess that that's the challenge. But I always believe, and again, this is just a feel thing. I don't have any stats for this, but I've always believed that when you have players that you develop the chemistry with that you're talking about in Daniels and Gittins, and then they have to bump back to these other spots, at some point in the game, 
Clyde Bethel Thompson is going to make a sensational throw. It could be a fly and die to the wide side, the curly gittens, where it's just like he's not even out of his break when McLeod lets it go and their timing is perfect and boom, it's on his hands when he snaps his head around. It could be an in-breaking route in between linebackers throwing between a window where he hits Tavares and Eric is the decoy running a wheel route down the sideline or something like that. You'll see him make such a great throw in this game. And you'll be like, wow, that's a good one. And it's like, okay, well, why was that so good? Why was that so so rhythmic and 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 confident? That's because he has that chemistry that you're talking about. So uh, I've always believed that when when somebody comes back into the lineup that's a really talented receiver, it pulls your heartstrings a little bit on where you want to go with the ball. But there will be moments of kind of like the out of body, you know, whether you call it like the mental flow state or whatever it is, where you'll see. McLeod make a fantastic throw to one of those two receivers and he won't even realize how great it is because he's just in the in the flow of the game and making plays Um, but it'll always creep up on you and you'll always feel a connection with those players that you've worked with most consistently and another thing I wanted to get your opinion on is the amount of time that Toronto has had off and not so much the rest versus rust, but rather mm-hmm. in the, the game planning side of it. Toronto hasn't played a meaningful game since that Tiger Cats game. And it will have been like almost a month yeah. for Toronto because even their, you know, their, their game against Edmonton was on a Tuesday. And so they've essentially already had like two straight bye weeks. And they and didn't play was, anybody. Right. <laughs> right. And so, and it, it's, uh, it's something where I feel like, from a Toronto perspective, it would have been nice if Hamilton had been forced to show a few more of their cards last week because you could see they they sort of called things off not not that early, but mm-hmm. you know they didn't have to you know go down to the wire the full game showing everything they had. But there's going to be a, a lot less left in the vault than Toronto has working with having not needed to show anything in a month. Yeah, absolutely, and I. Like, I think for Toronto, the biggest challenge on this one, it comes down to not overthinking things. Um, and part of that for me comes down to some of these home run shots on offense, because you know this, Ben, from looking at them closely throughout the year, the majority of the successful shots they've had downfield have been schemed. Like they've been called, they've been double moves, or they've been like, let's take a shot on the. And you get the sense that Dinwiddie, as the relatively recent, like the young coach who's the relatively recent quarterback, he really likes to still have his hand in the game where, and I don't think it's an ego thing. I just think it's, he feels like it's a strength of himself as a play caller to know when to go for that home run shot and how to take it and what he sees he trusts. And a lot of the time he's been right, but I feel like he does call these things where it's like, it's not, Hey, we're going to run, you know, two verts and I want you to read the safety and look them off and go. It's like, no, this is the wheel route. He's your vertical shot. I'm calling it because it's a special, you know, twist on a concept we've been running and I want you to him down the sideline. And, uh, and for me, it's like, you get enough time off you know, when I was talking to, again, my former offensive coordinator, John Behe for a, a podcast last week, and we were going through, uh, the, the play sheet, the call sheet that we had for the Vanier cup in 2011. And I didn't remember this at all. I was blown away by this. He said, we had 25 plays on our play sheet. I was like, what? Like, how is that even possible? Like we ran, like, I don't even remember what the number was, but we ran something like 90 offensive plays, I think in that game. And we had 25 plays on the band and we didn't like run out of plays and go over the sideline whiteboard and go, Oh my God, what should we make up? It was like, no, that's our 25 stuff. We feel really comfortable with it and we'll call it as we need to. And it wasn't that our offense was dumb. It wasn't, we didn't have guys that were super intellectual and could figure out concepts and do things on the fly. It was just, 
we we didn't want to overthink it. We were like, we know who we are. It's not going to impress anybody at the end of the game if we have 90 plays run and every single one of them is different and we lose the game. It's like the point of this is to just win the game. So I think that there, there has to be a little bit of that checking at the door of, hey, we've got all this time. We've got all this film to watch. Let's scheme up all this special stuff and see how much of it we can get to. No, just call the game. Like just just stay within yourself and know what has gotten you to this point. You're playing a home playoff game for a reason that you've had success at home. You've had success this season being who you are. You don't have to dial up all this crazy stuff to get McLeod Bethel Thompson to throw some touchdown passes. He's going to do that for you if you give him solid concepts that he can read through progressions, deal with the pressure of the Tiger Cats front four and get the ball out of his hand. So that idea of uh, of overdoing it, I think, is the biggest question for me with with the offense at the very least, because I don't think Chris Jones, I mean, he's been around the block. He's seen this stuff. He knows how to handle these long layoffs. I don't think the defense will be in question. And same with Mark Nelson. I mean, he's <laughs> the, the thing I worry about for Mark Nelson is him looking down at the other offensive or special teams coordinator and Jeff Reinbold and being like, well, what the hell is he going to throw at us? Because Reinbold's always using crazy stuff and he's usually using it against Toronto or at the very least trying to use it against Toronto. So Nelson's got to be driving himself crazy just trying to predict what the special stuff's going to be from the Ticats special teams. And, and I guarantee you there's going to be some sort of exotic pump block attempt <laughs> given the, the trouble that Toronto has had. And they haven't had a lot recently, but just based on you know the six or seven games this year where somebody either got through or almost got through, I know for sure that's coming. So I'm, I'm sure Coach Nelson has, has been scheming all week to make sure everything is protected from, from every angle, even if it's, you know, and you, you don't want to sacrifice coverage downfield. That's not, you know, that's that's not a game you really want to get into against Hamilton. But um, yeah, you got to you've got to make sure that punt isn't blocked. And and it's plays like that that I think will be a real problem for the Argonauts. Like to me, I, I, I everyone differs on this. My personal opinion is I believe Toronto is is a better football team. And mm-hmm. I don't think by much, but I do think they are. And so from my point of view, they need to avoid things that. Uh, neutralize that advantage. And so things that typically do that are penalties, turnovers, weather sometimes, you can't really avoid that. But uh, the, the turnovers and the penalties, we look at Hamilton's most recent game against Montreal. I'm not even sure Hamilton played that well. I couldn't even tell. Like watching over that, you know, I, I've done now two rewatches of that game since originally watching it. And every time I watch it, I'm not I'm not even really sure what Hamilton did in that game. And and the stats are the weirdest thing ever because they just had so much um, Montreal had so much uh, penalty yardage and they turned the ball over five times. And so Hamilton just didn't need to do a lot. So, you know, I'm I'm struggling there because to me, that's that's definitely the end of of Toronto. If they turn the ball over the way Montreal did, if they commit penalties like Montreal did, they're, they're done. That's it. But I don't know if Hamilton has enough ammo without those things because I haven't seen it recently. Yeah, it's it's a totally fair criticism. Like I was watching from the upper deck at Tim Hortons Field during this game. And the thing that jumped out to me was, I mean, obviously the vast majority of their scoring came in that second quarter. And it wasn't even really like this tide of emotion or momentum or any of those kind of intangibles that you want to talk about. It was just they got put into some pretty decent down in distances, whether it be by penalties or down, uh, you know, field position based off of flags or whatever turnovers. And then they hit a couple plays. Like they ran in that game, something like, you know, 52, 53, I think offensive plays. I think five of them probably earned them the win, which again, it's not unheard of. Like it's always going to be a handful of plays that are going to help you get towards a victory, but 
It was the Brandon, Brand- Brandon Banks touchdown, obviously, when they got the coverage that they wanted. Montreal didn't roll the backside half over. The free safety had to cover down. Miscommunication and coverage. See you later, Patrick. Levels run a corner to the back of the end zone. Like it's, it was, I'm sitting in the upper deck, and I'm talking myself through that as I'm watching it, and I'm like, that's exactly the look that they wanted. Like it's very obvious that that was the look. Masoli read it perfectly. He made the right throw. And that's the difference in playoff football sometimes when you have teams that are closely matched up like Montreal and Hamilton. I think were if, if William Stanback actually runs effectively in that game and the Ticats defense doesn't shut him down and Trevor doesn't have to throw the ball as many times as he dicks, I that was not their game plan. Like that that was not they were they were lining up Montreal was not to get lost on last week, but they were lining up in in so many sets that were balanced, right? It was Quan Bray and Reggie White to one side. It was Geno Lewis and Jake Winnicky on the other side. And in the backfield, it was either Stanback and Spencer Moore or Stanback and Christoph Normand or Stanback and Cameron Artis Payne or Cameron Artis Payne and Spencer Moore. Or they, they were going running back, running back or running back, fullback. And they just wanted to be able to run the ball more effectively. And when they couldn't, it was like, okay, this this game is just not going to go Montreal's way because Trevor's not going to throw you out of this thing by just chucking it up in the snow into that talented secondary. And that that's why I bring this up to say when I'm looking at the margin of error, I think for Montreal, it was super, super thin. And the most critical part of that margin for error was if you don't get William Stanback going, this is not going to unfold properly for you. When I look at Hamilton and Toronto and the way they match up, it's like, I'm with you. I think that Toronto actually has like the, the deeper talent on their roster as of right now going into this game. But I don't know if the margin for error is any bigger or smaller for Toronto because Hamilton just plays them so tough outside of that week 15 game. But again, that's the conundrum of all of this is like, well, week 15 is recent and, and not a whole lot is going to change, but the way that they run their stuff since week 15. And uh, again, this is what I've been doing. This, this podcast is a great look inside my mind for the last three, four days because it's just like yarn being attached to strings and I'm trying to connect dots and be like, well, this makes sense. No, actually, no, it does. It's the same thing I talked about with the Rubik's Cube. It's like every time I start talking, I just start talking in circles because it's like, yeah, but the end is the beginning and the beginning is the end of what the point I'm trying to make because this is such a, a mixed bag and uh, and I just... the One thing I can't get my mind off of is just how vertical and how aggressive Hamilton was throwing the ball in week 15. And I'm like, is that the plan just because that's the way they wanted to play Toronto? Or is the first quarter, first half even going to look significantly different in a playoff matchup because they're going to go more conservative? And what's the difference maker in that? And how did they come to the determination that they wanted to be so aggressive in week 15? And there's just a billion questions and we don't have any any answers going into this. And I don't even know if we will afterwards, to be honest. And I would like to know, like postseason, I, I hope that we get an answer to that question because I want to know if that was uh, data gathering, because right? that's yeah. something that I love to do, like especially if I know I'm playing a team again later or a game doesn't matter. Um, or sometimes even in a first quarter, I'm just going to throw a bunch of formations out there because I want to see, you know, how do they respond? Okay, when we do this, we yeah. line up in bunch, we line a bunch near, a bunch far. Or we, what if we line up stacked? You know, how do they, how do they respond to this? And if you've got a whole game to do that, now I don't think that was the plan really because Hamilton did want to win that game. It meant yeah, something, yeah. but there is, you know, there is something like if we can gather data and also you know try and win this game you know much like how i think montreal was trying to win the game against ottawa but without actually 
playing anybody or risking anybody's (laughs) health. And so like you're trying to do two things at once. It doesn't usually work out. But was that the plan? Was that was that data collection or was that a strategy that they they said, you know, hey, when we think we're going to get zero, we're going to we're going to take a shot um, and see if we can connect with a home run. I I don't know, but I hope I hope we get an answer to that. I I agree with you. And it's I think whatever questions we were going to ask about week 15 and where that came from, the follow up question is going to be whatever the hell they do in this game, because because if it's the same, then you're asking a follow up. And if it's completely different, you're asking a much different follow up. But they all matter like they're all connected. And uh, yeah, I heard Orlando Steinauer say it is his post game press conference on Sunday after beating Montreal about the regular season, because that's kind of been my conspiracy theory as well has been, well, I think they were just trying to see how Toronto handled some stuff and maybe the personnel that they want to attack going forward, because it's tough to, to get a book on some of these guys like Deku. And uh, uh, I'm trying to think, number who's number 12 on Toronto's defensive backfield? I'm oh, blanking. Jamal Peters. Yeah, Jamal Peters. Like, I don't think there's a really well-rounded book on him as a player as of yet, even though he's been around for a little bit now. So I was like, well, maybe they're trying to figure that out. And then I'm with you. I'm like, they wanted to win that game, Marshall. I'm like, what are you talking about? They weren't just going to go out and chuck it and be like, hey, let's find out who's good at defending the deep ball. It's like there were bigger things at stake than just that. But then Orlando said in his, as I say, his postgame press this past Sunday, that the regular season is all about information gathering. It's data gathering season. It's not a regular season. It's data gathering. And I'm like, okay, that that makes sense and you put that in your post game presser going into a playoff game against Toronto after what we saw you tried to do to Toronto in week 15 I'm like okay that makes a little bit more sense now I feel a little more comfortable saying that maybe they were trying to figure some stuff out late in the season it's funny how football is such a, a strange thing because any game can I, I know we, we've talked about on on this podcast before how any game can come down to sort of five moments or five plays but I think you can get even more in a tight game, it's you talked about the the razor thin margin of error and and stuff like that in the Montreal game. There can be one play call in a game like this, one decision. You know, on on this particular play, this setup. If this decision is made correctly, it's going to go Toronto's way. If it's made incorrectly, yeah. it's going to go Hamilton's way. I, I think you can even find that in the Hamilton Montreal game. That second and three, Montreal's driving early in the game. They Hamilton knows it's going to be a run. Montreal knows they're going to run, and they run this strange like a uh, cross block on the left side is like a trap block um, yeah. that I, I know Jagarrett Davis was like in the backfield before Trevor Harris even, you know, knew what was happening, handed off the ball and it was, it was blown up immediately. And that, that to me was, that, that might've been it. You know, if Montreal scores a touchdown on that drive, how different does that game look? How does that turn out yeah. differently? And so, you know, this, in this game here, it could be one of those things. These teams are are tight enough where there's a lot of pressure on these coaching staffs because if you have one blown assignment, one bust in coverage, one poor play call, uh, that 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 may be it. Yeah, totally. And it's funny to hear you mention that play because I thought the same thing where I'm like, that's just like Tony Washington not getting over and being able to make a play. I'm like, that's so frustrating. And then later in the game, this is the part that blew me away, Ben. You know this because you watched it back too. They ran the same play and Jaguar did the same thing. I know. Like he, he like he short cornered it again, made the tackle for loss in the backfield, got up and celebrated, and then Stanback got up and looked at Jaguar Davis and started laughing. And they said something to each other. And I was thinking, you know what? I would bet my life savings, which is not very much because I worked in radio for five years. Uh, but I would bet my life savings that William Stanback got up, turned around to Jaguar and said, God damn, we got to stop running that play towards your side. Because like that's the tendencies that grow out through the game that you see developing in real time. And it's like, 
okay, so if I'm Montreal, my game plan was to go in there, play two by two balanced with a running back and a fullback. And even when we're not able to run the ball, now we're just going to announce that we're going seven man protection and try to play a game of five on four. It's like, well, I don't love that game plan. Right. And, and so you could very clearly see they were using more of that personnel, more of those formations than they had all year. That was their plan. You got to be better than that, man, in order to beat Hamilton in Hamilton in the snow. Like, I don't think that was how you were going to get it done. And you got to learn to evolve in game. I think Hamilton is going to have an offensive game plan where they're going to spread it out and chuck it all over the place and try to pop a couple of inside draw runs and things like that to Don Jackson. But I mean, they're going to need everybody all hands on deck. And Stephen Dunbar was not good in the game this past weekend. And I think Tim White is arguably their best receiver as of right now. Uh, Brandon Banks is scoring some touchdowns down the stretch, but I think Tim White's the best receiver on the field for the Ticats. And, but then it becomes a question of Chris Jones. Like, is he going to roll coverage to Tim White? No, <laughs> like, I don't think that that's going to be a, like a simple X's and O's type of, uh, of move for them. So, uh, well, yeah, it'll, it'll be nice to see how it plays out and to finally get some answers, but man, there's uh there's, there's a lot of moving pieces here. When I, when I was going to take a look through the, the Hamilton defense and I was trying to come up with, you know, how to attack it. Well, um, a, a lot of my, a, a lot of my strategies have now gone out the window because I, I think now Siante Evans is going to play and I was going to try and take advantage right. of, of all this movement in the secondary. But assuming that everyone's sort of in their base positions, if you've got a delicate playing free safety, um, you've got, you know, one of the best linebackers in the league and Simone Lawrence at linebacker, and you've got Jagger Davis playing the way he was, uh, last week, not to mention that's a that's a really strong defensive line across the board for Hamilton. But you've got you've got star players at at every level of the defense, and that to me is sort of scary because that starts limiting your options as to where to attack. And there's there's a, a game breaker at every level of the defense that can make you pay if you you know if you aren't smart with the football. So that is something that that sort of concerns me. And um, we maybe don't have the same stars to that degree uh, at every level in Toronto. It's a, it's an outstanding defense, and I think position for position they match up very well. But it's got to be a just a big confidence thing for that whole Hamilton defense, knowing that your positional group you can look over at a guy like like yeah. like and you know not to mention the boundary guys too in in uh, in, uh, in Brooks and, uh, and and Desmond has you know obviously been shutting it down on uh, on the boundary corner all year. So I, I just think there's a lot of faces there where if things aren't going well they can look around and they know they've got you know Simone's going to be there for them and and Davis and Adelica and all those guys are going to be there for them that's got to be a huge confidence boost yeah the crazy thing is too like they have that comfort level because they're guys that they trust that are next to them but they're not even the people who are supposed to be there like that's supposed to be Delvin Bro in the boundary playing with Brooks and Jagger Davis and Simone Lawrence and middle linebacker is supposed to be Larry Dean like if the COVID season actually happens in 2020 it's Delvin Bro and Larry Dean and Rico Murray. Instead, it's Cameron Kelly, Santos Knox, and Desmond Lawrence. And yet they're still looking around and being like, yeah, you guys have been here all season. You've been pretty healthy all year, so we can still kind of ball out with you and trust it, which is is crazy to think that they've evolved that quickly. That's that's probably a big credit to Mark Washington for what he's been able to do to, to keep that unit together. But in terms of attacking Hamilton's defense, I was kind of with you on the theory that you mentioned about going after before we came on here going after probably the free safety and Stavros gets cats and tonus because i actually thought montreal based on the fact that it was it was last second or it was late before kickoff they really tried to go at tunde adelike when he was playing field half and he had a game high 10 tackles and he gave up some catches in front and he had to make some rally tackles and all the rest but i mean that dude flies around and plays at a pretty high level 
And I thought, well, man, if Tunde's in at half again and Stavros is the free, if I'm an offensive coordinator and I'm running this RPO system that Ryan Dinwiddie is, I'm going to be doing catch it in the gun, ride through the belly, pull a guard, make it look like it's this inside trap play, pull it, go to throw a slant to the field side, right? Try to beat Tunde on that. And if Stavros dives down, now it's like a second or a third level RPO where it's like I'm I'm riding, I'm watching to see if my slant pops open, then I'm checking the free safety. If he takes a single step down, I got a sluggo on the backside. And I'm just going to go here to pop to reset my feet, and then the ball is gone. And it's like, so I started dreaming up ways that I could defeat that lineup, but then it's like, well, if Siante Evans is in, does that change that? Probably. If Tunde's back at free safety, he's not as likely to, to randomly jump at eye candy that you're going to get in an RPO slant offense. That probably changed. So I, I agree. It does. It changes the way that I think that they will attack what Hamilton is offering up. And it's funny, we were talking earlier this week uh, on the podcast about a lot of those same concepts that, that you're talking about, ways to, to you know try and take advantage of that situation. Another one was uh, Hamilton uh, at midfield uh, showed a tendency to want to roll coverage to get mm. uh, Delicate back into that free spot. They would sort of shift around. If you, if you can anticipate rolling coverage there are some fantastic things you can do to take advantage of that and so that's one of those rolls of the dice where you think okay well what if we you know hit a uh, some sort of quick hitter into the space that's being vacated by Adelike as he rolls back to free to cover deep third or or what have you or have a, a slant from Eric Rogers coming across against that um, you know there's there's so many exciting possibilities if you can if you can gamble and you think you're going to see that but again we may not get to to take a look at that because I kind of expect him at, at, at this point to be back at free safety so i guess yeah. we'll never know mcleod does do a good job i will say though of being able to diagnose stuff really quickly and like when i talk about rolling with the punches in the middle of the game and figuring it out like i don't think that he's afraid to have his voice heard on the side and like hey here's here's the look that i'm getting please let me try to control this at the line of scrimmage and let's talk to these guys and figure it out in the middle of the huddle in the middle of the game i think he's he's got that quality that you want at a quarterback because Again, it, applying my own sensibilities to it, I re, my last game ever in high school football, we were getting beat up by a team that we had crushed by 30 points in the regular season. Talk about playing teams twice back-to-back or close to each other. And we were getting beat in this city championship game. And my offensive coordinator came over to me and said, do you want to call the plays? Like I was in high school. I'm a fifth-year quarter. He's like, do you want to call the plays? He's like, because I can't figure out what you want right now and you have a better sense for what's going to work because you're on the field. And I said, No. And my whole football life, I've regretted it. Like, I think back to that moment and I'm like, oh man, I froze up and I said no. And it was like, that's that's been a lesson for me the rest of my football life, whether it be playing or not, where it's like, when somebody gives you the opportunity to have your voice heard and you feel very strongly about something, take advantage of that. Like, grab that and say, you know what? I am going to call my own place. And, and McLeod's got that. And I apply, again, my sensibilities to that. And it's like, well, I wish I had that confidence that he gives off. Even when he misses a throw and he flails his arms about and he squats down, he grabs his helmet and he freaks out and he starts yelling and pointing. And He's super emotive on the field. And it's like, I don't mind that because a quarterback who's not comfortable in his own skin and doesn't trust himself to make the next throw would miss the throw and honestly do what at times Cody Fajardo does, which is like, kind of angry but like i'm just gonna go to the sideline and hopefully nobody notices me and i don't want to cause a scene so i'll just like i'll try to stay out of the way and you know i'm really upset but i'm not gonna let anybody see that i'm upset and it's like cody has that weird vibe where it's like you're allowed you're allowed to express yourself man like you're the starting quarterback for the saskatchewan rough riders people will follow you so lead them and for me mcleod is somebody who can be followed behind because he actually does give you that sense of 
that rock and that confidence. And again, to compare the two quarterbacks, Jeremiah has so much respect in that locker room in Hamilton because he's a long tenured guy, but also he's soft spoken. And once in a while, and we haven't seen it for a while, Ben, but once in a while, he'll just do something that's really badass that for lack of a better term, makes all the kids in the room get really excited. Like all the young first and second year guys are like, oh, snap, I saw this guy play at Oregon in like 2000, whatever, way, way back. And he's still out here balling and I'm on his team. I want to follow that guy because I know him and I trust him and I feel like he's the one that can help us get to a great cup. So it's just another layer to the quarterback matchup where the the intangible leadership stuff, I think, will play into this one. And I guess it's whichever quarterback leads the best that gives his team the chance to win. First of all, a quick shout out to Coach Doyle, uh, your, your your former coach, uh, Frontenac Falcons, because they they I think they just won uh, they an awesome championship. Yeah, they beat Centennial thirty seven to seven this past week. So very excited. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I think yeah, he's a he's a great guy and a great coach. Um, that was a, my my very first offsa win was was over Coach Doyle, and that was a that was an extremely well coached team. So nice. I was always impressed with with what he put out there, and it was one of my favorite wins because it really felt like we achieved something and that was a team we had we had 10 guys that ended up uh, playing uh, U sports the next year nice uh, from that team it was a stacked team and and they gave us everything we could handle it was just such a, a disciplined intelligent football game and man it was one of my one of my favorites of all time so I always Very try to cool. keep track of what what Frontenac does because they're they're fun to watch it's good football yeah, now, that's awesome. My my offensive coordinator, Mark McGee, actually texted me after they won off this week and he said, Hey, do you want the film login? Can you review? Can you let me know what you think of what we're doing here? I'm like, hey man, whatever you guys are doing, just keep doing it. I can't help you. You're winning stuff. So And then the other thing, talking about McLeod, I, I think that's the biggest transformation he has made yeah. since the criticism he was getting going back sort of, you know, to the 2019 prior to that. The the book on him was he was always taking too long to figure out what was happening downfield. And so he was taking a lot of sacks, he was making bad throws, he was waiting in the pocket. To me, the light sort of clicked at the end of the 2019 season. One of my favorite games to go back and watch from 2019 is the last time they played Montreal. In Montreal, Toronto lost the game. Uh, it was sort of the emergence of Chandler Worthy um, and McLeod Bethel Thompson endured, uh, I believe, 11 defensive back blitzes in that game. Oof. They had heat coming from all over the place and he struggled in the first quarter. And then after that, he started to recognize things really quickly. And that was the first time I really saw that light go on for McLeod Bethel Thompson. And since then, his diagnosis to me has has been far more quick but also more accurate and so that's something that he suddenly is really good at you talk about diagnosing a defense if you told me a few years ago that was a skill that he brought to the table I I would have doubted you and yet here we are I think he's great at it I think he's done a wonderful job adjusting to a very different system too, one that requires him to you know have these these RPOs and and make some different reads than what he's been asked to do in the past but he's he's such an intelligent guy and so you knew eventually it would click for him and I, I do believe it has so that's the coverage the disguising stuff I'm not too worried about that from from an Argos perspective but it's going to be a fun part of the game to watch as well well sometimes with him he's so smart that he diagnoses it and then he just doesn't execute the throw like there's been times this year where guys have been over. Like I think Curly Gittins Jr. at one point late in the season down onto the field side going away from the lake towards the go train station there at exhibition ran a little double and he just missed him by like a huge amount. And I was like, what the hell is that? Like you do all the hard stuff, like do the easy thing, make the throw. Like it, it's coming out of your hand. It's spinning, put it where you want it. It's not that hard. So I love talking to McLeod Bethel Thompson because he is such an intellectual and so much fun to pick his brain. And the first thing he said 
to me in an interview this year on a sit down for the CFL and TSN was, I was like, how are you seeing the game? Like, how has it changed for you? And he gave me this analogy where he said, like football is triangles. And he said, so everything is, you know, the Sam linebacker moves and the halfback tilts and the free safety comes down. And he's like, they're all attached to be a string. And these triangles are always tilting and shifting. And he said, before I, I would just look at the triangle of where I was trying to throw the football. And that was all I understood was like, those three players and I was trying to understand where they were going and, and how they were getting there and how it would affect my routes being open. He said, now I see the triangle and I'm starting to understand how it affects the rest of the play. So I'm looking at that triangle of those three players that I'm kind of reading out, but I'm like, well, now I get that if that triangle looks a certain way, well, I'm probably going to get pressure on my backside. So I should pr- probably get rid of this ball. And I thought that that was a real interesting look into the mind of a guy who's seeing it in the first person and, uh, and, and, honestly learning right in front of us and you don't get to see that very often like because a lot of quarterbacks don't this is this goes back to a larger conversation that's probably more of an offseason thing but quarterbacks don't give get given the chance to learn because quarterbacks that come in fresh to the cfl usually suck (laughs) like like they can't figure it out it takes a little while it's why i kept campaigning this year for caleb evans in ottawa where i'm like just keep letting him play like, even if he sucks, keep letting him play. You will be rewarded for it down the road if you just keep letting him play. It's not that Toronto didn't have other options than McLeod. It's that he just didn't go away. Like, he just, like, lingered and was back up. And then he was starting. And, oh, he throws all these picks. Well, now he's just a late-game guy. Well, now he's just compiling. Well, now he's... Okay, yeah, but he's been around, like, long enough for you to have an opinion about him. And because he's been around long enough, I think he's just learned and he's just accrued knowledge over time and through reps and through practices. And and I think not that he's been blow the doors off MOP favorite great this year, but he's been a better version of himself this season. And that's why they're hosting this game, I genuinely believe. Marshall, we have gone on forever, as we always do. This is, I think, set a record for, uh, certainly for an X's and Argos <laughs> scouting report episode, but I think for all X's and Argos podcasts. So uh, congratulations on setting the record. Thank I you. Knew, I knew it would be with you, but... Uh, I was just trying to bump your Spotify wrapped so that if, right. anybody, if anybody was listening to you, that it would be the maximum number of minutes. Yeah, I think it, it might just be my dad that has X's and Argos <laughs> as their Spotify wrap, but uh, I appreciate you uh, and your effort on that. Um, Marshall, before you go, uh, tell us about some of the stuff you're working on and, you know, some of the events that we got coming up. There's all sorts of excitement, uh, whether it's on the CFL page, whether it's stuff you're doing on the pod. What do we have? What do we have to look forward to? Uh, Sometimes I just laugh because I'm like, how in the hell did I get here where things are this busy every single year down the stretch? But I I always enjoy this three-week sprint. It's a little crazy. We were joking before I came on because you said, yeah, I'm just pouring a beer here. And I said, I got to make a quick tea. And you're like, why are you having tea? I said, man, no energy wasted because it's just, it's stupid, honestly. And even then, like, I still ask for forgiveness and flexibility from the CFL.ca staff because I'm submitting articles like two days later than they're supposed to be on our on our deliverables uh, chart and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, so I, I'm doing the CFL.ca playoff coverage, which basically involves shooting some videos, post-game recaps, uh, redtag.ca aerial report. We're doing quarterback write-ups. We're doing analysis pieces. We're doing pre-game videos, uh, going to BMO Field on Friday to shoot that one with Chris O'Leary, which should be a lot of fun because I haven't worked with Chris in a long time. Um, and then in terms of CFP, we're just pumping out lots of content. Connor uh, O'Neill and Wade Zinketa doing a great job promoting the Vanier Cup and U Sports football. Uh, I've got, uh, yeah, some special podcasts coming up in the final week of the regular season through Grey Cup. 
which I'm looking forward to putting out there. And I also just found out uh, two days ago that I am going to be co-hosting Grey Cup Saturday on TSN uh, for six hours, which is great because I've never done a studio show. And they were like, here, want six hours to talk football? I was like, cool, let's do it. So um, hopefully this is my audition tape to show them how much time I can fill if they need to uh, in order to, uh, to to break down the Great Cup. But uh, that's going to be a tremendous opportunity. And then on Great Cup Sunday, uh, you are invited, Ben, if you can make it along with anybody else who is uh, listening to us right now. We have a great Grey Cup tailgate party going on. It's at Merritt Brewing in downtown Hamilton from 1 to 3 p.m. on Grey Cup Sunday. Uh, free, free, no cover, none of that stuff. Any money you spend will just be on beer and having a good time. We got trivia. We're going to do some CFP swag giveaways, um, all that good stuff. We're just trying to create an event that people want to come and hang out. The, the game's going to be broadcast at Merritt Brewing that night on a projector screen inside the brewery. Uh, it's got room for about 75 to 100 people based on the, the restrictions that they have in place right now. Uh, double vaccinated, masked, all that good stuff. But we're hoping that we can fill that up with 75 to 100 people consistently for a couple of hours. I'll be there as of noon on that day, uh, recording podcasts and hanging out and uh, and having some beers and enjoying Grey Cup Sunday the way that we should after a long year of uh, grinding away and talking about the game. It's uh, it's a nice place to be able to get together with friends. So yeah, podcasts, written stuff, uh, throwing a party at the end of it all. And then hopefully we have a hell of a game coming up a week from Sunday. There is not a busier man on the planet right now, Marshall, but it's all good stuff. It's all Canadian football, so you, you, yes. you can't complain. Marshall, yes. thanks so much. It's been amazing having you all year. Thanks for every stop you've made with us. It's been uh, continuous because there's been so much Toronto-Hamilton uh, action yeah. this year, but I appreciate you being on with us every single time. No, thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. And I know I say this every time I come on, but it's it's great that you've been able to build this up and the listenership and all the rest because it's, it's such a meaningful market to the Canadian Football League. I don't give a damn what people say about attendance numbers and all the rest. Uh, and having you be a consistent part of their understanding, I think, of Toronto Argonauts football. Uh, there's some people that want to you know wave the pom-poms and celebrate, and there's some people who want to strictly educate. And I think that you do a great job of both, man. So thank you for having me. It's always fun to come and hang out. Thanks, Marshall. Well, that will just about do it for us on this episode of the X's and Argos Scouting Report. For Marshall Ferguson, this is Ben Grant saying so long, and may all your pre-snap reads be good ones. I'll see ya. Go Toronto Argos, go, go, go. Pull together, fight the 